Most of you know that feeling of when you are first falling in love with someone. Um, the excitement, the initial attraction, um, the story sharing. They tell you stories, you tell them stories, all the getting to know each other. The thrill of, of getting to know their favorite song, favorite band, favorite movie, favorite TV show, favorite food, favorite restaurant, favorite color, favorite everything. Um, uh, all the excitement, all the effort, all the energy that goes into putting your best foot forward. Most of us know that feeling. And for all of us who have had that feeling, unfortunately, most of us, if not all of us, have also known the feeling of losing that first love. Now, whether or not that means realizing they weren't the right one and then moving on, or perhaps they thought that way and maybe you had to walk through the pain of that relationship ending, or um, whatever it might have been, people lose their first love all too often and for all too many reasons. But today, the point of the message, what we're going to be talking about is not when is a first love merited to be lost or when is it merited or not merited. In fact, today we're going to be discussing the loss of a love that we know is not merited. And in our last series, a couple of weeks ago, we just finished our series called End Times Anxiety. We went through a lot of the book of Revelation, talking about end times and all that kind of stuff. And as we were in that series, we read a part uh, where John, in his revelation from Jesus, had letters, uh, or sorry, not letters, well, yeah, letters that were to be given to the seven churches that are listed um, in the book of Revelation. One of those churches was the church at Ephesus. And as Jesus was talking to the church at Ephesus, he says, hey, you've done this great, you've done a great job with this, really happy with the way you've done this, all these great things, but this one thing I have against you, that you have forgotten your first love. In fact, several translations, like the ESV, the one that we read the most often here at Word of Grace, says you have abandoned your first love. So this is problematic, and the reason this is problematic is quite clear. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is citing an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6 when Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, a religious leader of the law, Jesus was asked, well, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't really ask because he wanted to know. It says plainly that he asked him because he was trying to get him tripped up, get him to answer something wrongly so he'd go, ha ha, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy doesn't have any idea. He's not, a, he's not from God. He wanted him to mess up. And so as Jesus answered in wisdom, of course, well, he answered in wisdom because he said what Scripture said in the Old Testament. He said, well, the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God, you got it, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. A couple different places he also says all your strength. And in the places where strength is omitted, um, it was added in those accounts. Because essentially what Jesus is saying, love God with everything you've got. All your strength, all your might, all your energy, all your focus, all your time, all your resources. Everything you've got. And Jesus is answering saying, that's the greatest commandment. So... Essentially, there's nothing in our lives from birth to death that's more important than loving God with everything we've got. That's not like a shrouded thing we need to really, really dig in Scripture to try and figure out. That's really clear. And I don't know about you guys. Some days I do well in it. Some days I don't. Some day, sometimes I do better than others. And that's a problem because Jesus is echoing and confirming the commandments in the Old Testament saying, yep, the most important one, the greatest commandment is that you love God with everything you got, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Now, we are in this series now called First Love, and last week Pastor Derek did an incredible job talking about our passion for God, really evaluating ourselves. Where's our passion? Have we lost our passion? If so, why have we lost our passion? And surrounding ourselves with the right people that stoke and stir our passion for God. And then also being that for others, stirring other people's passion for God. Asking ourselves, 
what, what in my life stirs my passion for God and choosing to do those things and participate in those activities and those relationships that naturally stir my relationship for God, my passion for God. And in this commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, those first two statements that you love God with all your heart and all your soul, those are really easy kind of to pair together with that passion conversation. But then there's the third of love God with all your mind. Love God with all your mind kind of begs the question, how? What does that even look like, loving God with your mind? And then secondly, why does, honestly, why does that even matter that we love God with our mind? I mean, shouldn't it just be enough that we love him? I mean, if we are incredibly zealous for God, like if you're super passionate for God, if you're always giving of yourself and your time to do things for God, and if you're committed to like every time the church doors are open, you're there, and if you're uh, a passionate uh, evangelist where you're, you're trying to tell other people about God, you're witnessing and telling others about Jesus, if I have that passion, then why, why should it matter that I love God with my, with my mind? And as we kind of dig into that question today, I want to invite you to go to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read something uh, that Jesus said today. I beat you all there because I had my, my marker there, so I got to just flip straight away. But Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is, is talking here. And this is right after he warns people about false teachers and false prophets and he says, you're going to know these people by their fruit. You'll judge a tree by its fruit. I look at an orange tree. I know it's an orange tree because there's oranges on the tree. And so he's saying what kind of fruit people have in their life, you'll know whether or not they're a false teacher or not. And then he goes on to say this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are people that, that are saying, to God, God, we prophesied, we, we cast out demons, we did great, good works in your name. This is a very sobering passage, a very kind of evaluation. Look at yourself, let's look in the mirror here, because Jesus is saying, right here, there's people who think they know me when they don't. There's people who think they are on their way to eternity with Christ when they're not. And they even did all the church stuff. These are three pictures here. These are three pictures of people saying, we prophesied, we, we cast out demons, we did great mighty works in your name. And what does Jesus say to them? You sinned too much. No. He didn't say, depart from me. You didn't go to church enough. He didn't say, depart from me. You didn't have enough faith. He said, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. This is a scary, sobering passage. I want to paint a picture for you real quick because I think if there are people who think they know God, not if, there is. We see clearly right here, Jesus is saying there's people who think they know God when they don't. If there are people who think they know God when they don't know God, then there's deception, there's error, there's wrong belief, right? And a lot of people think they know God because they have an idea in their head, in their heart of who God is, and they're pursuing that idea of God. A lot of people have been told by false teachers today, very, very famous and popular teachers today, some very famous ones with huge followings that are false teachers that are giving people false assurance that they're placing their faith in the wrong things. And therefore, people confidently think that they know Jesus when they don't because they have error, they believe wrong. I want to look at something 
or let me paint a picture for you real quick. I'm this coming Saturday, I will have been married to my wife six years. It's our sixth, sixth anniversary. Excited about that. And uh, let's just pretend for a minute that I'm just Mr. Hopeless Romantic. All the guys in here, right? Hopeless Romantics, yeah. Uh, let's pretend that I go home one day and I look at my wife and I bring her a dozen roses. And I'm like, Katie. And I set the roses on her lap. And I just hug her legs. And I say, Katie, I just love you so much. I just, I love everything about you, honey. I love, I love your long black hair. I love your, your deep blue eyes. I get lost in them like the ocean. I just, I love, you know what I love, honey? I, I even love your adorable Southern Belle twang. Many of you might not know I grew up in the South. I love your little Southern twang. It's so charming, honey, and adorable. I just love it. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's really sweet. Like, you should do that. You should be like that. If I said those things to my wife after that, some of you are smiling because you know my wife. And she would be saying, who are you talking to? And why are you hugging me? My wife's a blonde. My wife has green eyes. And my wife grew up in Keele. So she sure don't have a southern twang. She's lived in Sheboygan County her whole life. In fact, she says dragon, not dragon. And if you say dragon, I will pray for you. Come on, guys. I kid. So many people have lost love. So many relationships have not had the love that was there or even the thoughts that someone had love because their relationship is built on ideas about the other that aren't true. Now, obviously, I'm exaggerating. That's ridiculous. Obviously, I don't believe, you know, none of you are believing that your spouse's hair is a color that it's not or that their eyes are a color that it's not or that their accent or anything like that. But we do this with God. So many people don't know God because they have not availed themselves to Scripture to see in God's self-revelation through Scripture who He is. So many people, I mean, how many times have I heard people say, oh, God wouldn't do that, or God wouldn't be like that, or, what, or my God's not like that. And sometimes I just want to say, but have you read Scripture because I don't think Scripture agrees with your analysis or your picture or your image of God. And so many people in relationships, think about it, when you're dating, when you start dating someone, ultimately the ultimate goal is that you would find that spouse, that, that completer, that person that God made for you, that you would join in the covenant of marriage and spend your life together. And so therefore, when you start dating, I remember when I first started dating Katie, I was, we got married when I was 29 years old. And so I, uh, at that point, was like, I'm 29, actually 28 when we met. Like, I ain't interested in playing games. I'm not interested in having a girlfriend. I'm looking for a wife. I'm looking for someone who I want to spend the rest of my life with. It's important that you know that because that's going to really affect the way that we go about doing this. And she reciprocated and said the same thing. I, I'm looking for a spouse. I was like, cool, all right, well, let's get to know each other. And we began to pursue one another and get to know each other. And in that process of getting to know her, when I had that conversation with her, I was not in love with her yet. But over time, spending more and more time with her, getting to know who she was, the things that she valued, um, her perspective on different things, how she felt about different things, I began to fell, fall in love with who she is. Pastor Derek lately has been citing a lot uh, the passage from Matthew where Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field where a man was walking through a field, found treasure, and for joy over what he found, went back home, sold everything he had so he'd have enough money to buy that field and have the treasure. He says that's what the kingdom of God's like. It's like discovering, finding the immeasurable value that is Jesus Christ and realizing that everything else of God is not worth that treasure that's in that field. So I'm going to just let go of everything else I have 
so I can gain that treasure. I'm going to let go of everything I have so I can gain Christ. But is that our approach in knowing God? Because many, 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 many people, their picture of God, their idea of God is something that they've built from their feelings. I feel like a loving God wouldn't do that thing, right? A loving God wouldn't have a problem with my sin. He would just love me. A loving God wouldn't judge. And they're throwing away or neglecting or not even knowing aspects of who God is as are clearly portrayed and seen in Scripture. And so these people are not actually in love at all. They're infatuated. They're more in love with the idea. Many, many relationships and marriages have fallen apart because people jumped in really fast, infatuated, committed themselves to each other, and then found out, oh, after time, oh, this isn't who I thought they were. Or maybe started getting honest with themselves about they aren't who I was projecting they would be. They aren't who I was hoping they would be. Instead of going into the relationship going, who is this person? Who are, who are they? And, and the same with God. Are we going to God going, all right, I think I know who God is. I, I think I know what God's like. Now, uh, that's the God I'm going to serve, and that's the God I'm going to follow, and that's also the God that I'm going to try and find in the Bible. Or do we go into Scripture and go, God, who, who are you? Who are you? I want to know you. I want to know truth, even if it's uncomfortable, because if if your knowledge of God never makes you uncomfortable, you probably don't know God. If your knowledge of God never causes you to go, ooh, like the stuff that Jesus just said, that's uncomfortable truth. That there are people probably in this room right now who think, and I hate to think about that, but I'm glad to bring it up too so that maybe we can go, do I? Do I know God? See, your ability to rightly love God is greatly affected by how rightly you know God. Your ability to rightly love God is greatly affected by how rightly you know God. This is why we need to seek God as He is, and as, especially as He is revealed in scripture. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, do I want, do I really want to know who God is? Or do I just want to keep on believing what I want to believe and just run with that and hope it's right? Because I, I love uh, C.S. Lewis. is a famous Christian author. He's not here anymore, but um, he's written many, many great books, awesome apologetics uh, author. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, if you haven't read C.S. Lewis, do yourself a favor, go buy some of his books. Um, he has a quote that I love that he said, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If false, is of no importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Think about that. I, amen. If Christianity is true, it means everything. If the stuff in this book is true, well, it affects every aspect of your life. It affects your finances, your time, your relationships, your behavior, your language. It affects everything. If Christianity is true, if the Bible is true, it affects every area of your life. If Christianity is not true, throw away your Bible. Stop going to church and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If Christianity is not true, live it up. Have your best life now. Only thing it can't be is moderately important. It can't be sort of important. If this stuff is true, it cannot be... What's the weather like? Will we go to church today? No. Ouch. Do I have time for God today or my favorite show's on? I'll watch, I'll, I'll, I'll spend time with God after my show and then... Like if Christianity's true, it means everything, right? And therefore, having an accurate knowledge of God is incredibly important. 
So today we get to talk about two words that are big words that usually people make people go, oh, yawn. Theology and doctrine. A lot of people struggle with those words because they think, well, well, we don't need to have theology and we don't need to have doctrine. We just need Jesus. We just need the Bible and the Holy Spirit to teach me how to live. And, and yes, you need Jesus. Yes, you need the Holy Spirit. Yes, you need Scripture. But theology, whether you realize it or not or acknowledge it or not, you have theology. See, theology is just what you believe about God. And so it's not, oh, I choose not to get into theology. No, you have theology. The question is, do you have sound theology? And doctrine is just us going, hey, in, in Scripture, we clearly see the doctrine of justification, that we are justified, made right with God by his sacrifice of blood on the cross for our sins. That's the doctrine of justification that I just greatly oversimplified. That doctrine is something that I've seen in Scripture is clear, and I can bedrock stand on that and go, this is an absolute truth. This is a doctrine I cling to that also lets me know God rightly. Okay? So theology, doctrine are not heady things that we should go, oh, boring. No, you have theology. You need doctrine to help you Know God rightly. Because as we just said, your ability to rightly love God is greatly affected by your or by how rightly you know God. See, doctrine equips people to fulfill their primary purpose, which is to glorify God and delight in God through a deep personal knowledge of Him. Not some distant, I know Michael Jordan, you know, he's 23 Bulls, greatest basketball player of all time. I don't know Michael Jordan. I know distantly, Michael Jordan, who he is. Do you know God? Will Jesus say, I know you, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say, I never knew you? Meaningful relationship with God is dependent upon correct knowledge of him. Now, this knowledge is something we're growing in for the rest of our lives. It's not something we ever just figure out. If the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament in his letter to the church of Philippi, if he said, I have not arrived, I have not achieved it, but this one thing, I press forward, pressing on towards the goal which is set before me. If he can say, I haven't got it figured out, guys, we don't got it figured out, and we never will. He also wrote to the church in Corinth saying, we see in a mirror dimly, but then talking about an eternity, we'll see God face to face. Right now, we kind of understand. We see some of the picture. God has let us know some of what's going on and those things that God has made clear to us, we need to cling to those and we need to wrestle and work through scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us truth and to guide us into all truth so that we can follow God rightly and worship God rightly and serve God rightly and honor and glorify him with our lives. That meaningful relationship with God is dependent upon correct knowledge of him. Here's just a few examples of the biblical mandates to love God with your mind, to, to get serious about sound theology and sound doctrine, to get serious about being a student of the word of God, not so we can go, hey, guess what I know? Did you know that the Hebrew word for such and such means this? And that if you draw that and multiply it by three, then the Trinity becomes... That's not what we're talking about. The point of this is not to go, wow, I know so much. The point of this is to know God. The point of theology and doctrine is to help you know God. The point of studying scripture is to know God. Here's a few examples of biblical mandates to love God with your mind. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 says this. The author of Hebrews said, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For, through, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled unskilled. You develop skills. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the work of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. Their discernment trained 
Training takes time, takes practice, right? Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's saying, guys, you ought to be able to teach this stuff by now as long as you've been in this. But I'm having to keep going back over these foundational things with you because you aren't training and practicing. You're not devoting yourself to this. 2 Timothy 2.15 is a a famous verse. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He's saying, work hard, be diligent to be a student of the word of God so that you don't need to be ashamed. You can be approved as one who knows how to handle this, one who knows the word of God. Another famous verse from the Old Testament, Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Another famous verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here we go. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying, don't let this world conform the way you think, the way you believe, the way you behave. Why does this all matter so much? Because your behavior comes from your belief. Your belief drives your behavior. You're all sitting in chairs right now, not worried about floating into outer space because you believe in gravity. Your belief determines your behavior. That's why our belief matters so much. And he says, don't let the world conform you into their way of thinking, but instead be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing in the Word of God, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Guys, if you read the New Testament start to finish, and even a lot of places in the Old Testament where it's prophesying about the future, there are tons and tons and tons and tons of warnings about false teachers that are coming. Guys, the world is rampant with false teaching. And let me just say, I could drop some names right now of people who are putting out false teaching that would make you go, oh, wait, I, I, I like them. Probably. There's some people who are teaching false doctrine that if I said their names, you might go, well, but I, I like, they're a brilliant communicator. They make really good sense. And I, and, but listen, are they rightly dividing the word? Are they teaching it in context? Are they asking questions like, what would the original audience have re- understood that text to mean? Instead, what they're doing is they're taking this one verse and they're taking it out of context and saying, ah, oh, this means this, See? I remember when I grew up, I heard uh, a, a verse out of Hebrews chapter 10 that said, hold fast the confession of your faith for he who promised is faithful. And the preachers were telling us, see, there you go. You've got to confess I'm blessed. You've got to confess I'm healthy. You've got to confess I'm rich and my blessings are coming in. That's how I grew up. And some of you were like, oh, dang. Um, that's how I grew up. And that verse, they would use it to say, hold fast your confession. So you've got to confess this stuff over and over and over all the time, all the time. But if you just take that verse and put it in the context of the literary unit and read the whole literary unit it's in, in context, you see the author of Hebrews saying, hey, when you're suffering, when you're going through trials and tribulation and hardship, hold fast to the confession of your faith. Hold fast to your faith in Christ is what he's saying. For he who promised is faithful. He's not saying confess this stuff over and over so that you can get a bends. He's saying, when you are going through the furnace of affliction and trial and tribulation, hold fast to your faith in Christ. Context changes things. The world is rampant right now with false false preachers, false teachers, false teaching of people telling us how God is, who he is, what he's like, how he thinks, what he thinks of you. By just taking this verse out of here, this verse out of here, let's throw them in the pot, stir them up, and all right, here's our doctrine and theology, and it's garbage. 
there are people who are going to stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, we went to church every week. Lord, Lord, we prayed. Lord, Lord, we served at the shelter. Lord, Lord, that are going to hear, I never knew you. That's frightening. That ought to make us go, God, do I know you? Have I deceived myself into thinking that I know you by painting my picture of God by what I feel or by pop culture? God forbid, God, that pop culture builds your theology. Where do we get our theology, guys? Scripture. Scripture. Any theological system that tries to distinguish between rational propositions about God, thoughts and thinking and using our brains about God, tries to, ra- tries to distinguish between that and a personal relationship with God, separate them, fails to see the necessary connection between love and knowledge. The capacity to love, enjoy, and tell others about a person is increased by greater knowledge of that person. Love and knowledge go hand in hand. See, a good lover is a good student of the beloved. You want to love God rightly? You want to love God with all your heart, all your soul? It takes also loving God with all your mind. You want to love God with everything you've got? You want to love Him? Then you'll be a good student of Him. Again, this whole conversation is not going, hey, memorize as much scripture as you can so you can recite it and make people go, wow, they know the Bible. It's not so you can sit down in Bible studies and go, actually, guys, if you look up the Greek meaning, that's not the point. The point is so that we can know God and know him more and more and more and more and have our own error corrected and fixed and made right more and more over time. Some common complaints against theology are, well, you're trying to put God in your box and you're trying to limit God. And Don't you know knowledge puffs up? I don't need theology. I just need the Holy Spirit and I need the Bible and that's it. Well, the Holy Spirit and Scripture help you have sound theology and help you have sound doctrine. See, The remedy to bad theology is not no theology. You have theology and therefore you need to be diligent about having sound theology. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul wrote a letter to his apprentice. Wrote a couple letters that we have record of. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing to the very young pastor, Timothy. We're going to start in verse 1. He says, but understanding this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Wait, wait. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Sounds like what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sin and, uh, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is not saying what Paul was implying in Philippians where he says, I haven't arrived. He's saying there are things, truths, doctrines that we can arrive at. That by what God has made available to us in Scripture, we can confidently go, I believe in the doctrine of justification. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. That is available to me. That is a truth I can arrive at. Verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Here we go, verse 10. 
You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted." While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is profitable and helpful. There's a, script, or there's a, 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 a principle that is came out of the Reformation 500 years ago, one of the five solas, sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone, that we stand on scripture alone as our final authority for uh, understanding the truth, knowing the truth, um, that scripture is what we cling to, that if the Holy Spirit's telling you something and it doesn't agree with scripture, that's not the Holy Spirit, okay? If, if you feel like God's leading you to do something that conflicts with what we see in the character, nature, and attributes of God in Scripture, God's not leading you to that. Either Satan and forces of evil are or your, your flesh is. And so as we, we continue here in verse uh, 16 from chapter 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training. All Scripture Many of us are familiar with sola scriptura, scripture alone. There's another concept called toda scriptura, meaning the whole of scripture. A lot of error comes, and especially errors that are popular today, from elevating one scripture or one attribute of God or one ideology at the expense of another. You'll see this often in false dichotomies being presented where people say, oh no, God's not like that, he's like this. Be careful anytime you see that. Anytime you see, say, see someone say, God's not like this, he's like this. Ask yourself, does Scripture agree with what they just said? Does Scripture confirm what they just said? One that's really common is, well, well God's not uh, a judge that's, gonna, that's looking at your sin, ready to judge it. He's a, he's a good, loving father, ready to welcome you into his arms. And I just want to stand in the middle and go, actually, he's both. Actually, Scripture teaches that he is a righteous and perfectly just judge, which means every sin that has ever been committed will be judged. Whether that judgment falls on Christ on the cross or in the wrath of God on us on the final day without being in faith in Christ, without knowing Christ, every sin will be judged. And it's actually that knowledge of the severity of our sin how severe, well not severe, how, how powerful God's wrath is against sin, how great his holiness is, understanding those things to where they terrify me and make me weak in the knees as I look at myself, leads me over here where I can be grateful for the great love of God that he gave his son Jesus Christ to take that, per, that burden, that cup of wrath for my sin. But all too often people want to go, no, God's not like this, he's like this. Don't belittle one attribute of God because you like one more or because you find one more palatable. We want to know God for who he is. We have 66 volumes in scripture that help us know who God is more and more and more. Now, God is incomprehensible. In Psalms 119 verse 3, I believe it says um, that, that your greatness is unsearchable. We can't fully understand. Um, in the famous passage of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, uh, the Apostle Paul says, we see in part, we prophesy in part, we only know in part. We see in a mirror dimly, but that day when we are face to face, we will know even as we are known. We only got a part of the picture. We cannot know God fully, but we can know him. We cannot understand God fully, but... We can understand him, and we are called to seek him. And not just called, but invited. 
Do we sit there for a second? Can we just stop and go, God invited me, invited you to know him. God invited you to know him. There's nothing greater. There's nothing greater. In your entire life, there is no greater invitation. We study the Word of God in order to better know the person of God. We study the Word of God in order to better know the person of God. Uh, One quick illustration, my mom, a long time ago, she was a bank teller. And when she was training, they had to train her how to identify counterfeit money. And so what they did was they didn't give her counterfeit bills and go, here's a counterfeit. You've got to do the marker on it or you've got to hold it up to the light, blah, blah, blah. That's not how they trained. The way they trained her to identify counterfeits was they gave her stacks and stacks of thousands of authentic U.S. currency. And she would sit there counting thousands of bills, real money, real currency. And then in one stack, they would slip in one counterfeit. And as she'd be sitting there counting money, All of a sudden, after handling so much authentic currency, when a counterfeit came across her fingers, something was wrong. Instantly, her fingers said, something's wrong with this one. She didn't have to take every bill and go, huh, okay, huh, okay, huh, hmm, no. She handled so much real currency that when the counterfeit currency came across her touch, she instantly knew something was wrong. I can't give you a better picture why it matters so much, guys, that we are all students of God's word with all the false teaching that's out there, with all the false assurance. When you are handling the scripture for yourself regularly, when false doctrine comes across your metaphorical touch, the Holy Spirit goes, something's not right about that. Something's not right about that. You don't have to dig, 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 dig all the time. And sometimes that something's not right might lead to to digging. But the more you handle God's word, the more you know God. And when people misrepresent him or misspeak for him, the Holy Spirit gives you a check about it. (coughs) Excuse me. That's not the Rona. I just need water. The more you know God, the more you will love God. The more you know God, the more you will love God. The more you love God, the more you will look like God. In a world that desperately needs to see the love of God, the more you are pursuing knowing God, the more you will be able to show the love of God. Because you will know him and you will be able to be an effective ambassador for him. Where Paul said, we're ambassadors for Christ, whereby we cry out, be reconciled to God. How do you do that if you don't know him? If you can't speak for him? Really quick, I'm finishing up. To know God, we need three things. To rightly know God, we need three things. One, we need the word of God. If it hadn't been clear yet in what I've been talking about today, we need the word of God. We need the whole of scripture. Tota scriptura. Don't neglect parts you don't like. Wrestle with them. I remember when I was in Bible school, I had a friend who came up to me and he said, hey, Stephen, and he came with this really particularly difficult passage of Scripture, one that was not very palatable. And he, he read it to me and he said, Stephen, how does this passage line up with, with what we believe? And I went, man, I don't know. I, I guess I need to do a little bit more study. What I wish I would have said was, man, isn't that the wrong question? Like, how does the Scripture agree with what we believe? It's the wrong question. If there's not agreement there, who's wrong? We are. I remember a couple years ago, Pastor Derek and I were studying, um, we were going through the Bible in years, some of the staff we were, and we read a a verse in Exodus that made us go, huh. And it sent us into a little bit of wrestling about that verse confronts us about who we think God is. And it made us start doing some wrestling and seeking and searching. We need all of Scripture, not just the fluffy stuff. We need all of it. We need to know God for who He is, not just the parts that we like or that we want to believe. Number two, we need the Holy Spirit of God. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to His disciples, telling them, guys, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm heading out of here. And they're like, Jesus, no, no, you've got to stay. We need you. And He says, guys, listen, it's better for you that I leave. 
I know it's hard for you to understand. It's better for you that I leave because if I leave, my Father will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. So one, we need the Word of God, but as we get into the Word of God, we need to every time say, God, I need your Holy Spirit to guide me into truth. There are millions of people who have the Bible that have wrong theology or wrong doctrine or error belief. God, Holy Spirit, I submit myself to you. I yield to you. I need you to open my eyes and help me see truth. Help me not distort scripture. Help me not take it out of context. Help me not take confirmation bias to it where I'm trying to find what I want to find. Help me see God for who he is. Three, we need humility and teachability. Here at Word of Grace, we have a core value. We are always willing to give up what we believe for the truth. I believe some things right now that I didn't believe a year ago. Next year, I'll probably believe some things that I don't believe right now. Now, those are peripheral things, things that are not eternal heaven and hell matters. Those are absolutes, core, core beliefs. Those are what I'm talking about, the doctrines that we want to nail down and know confidently, arrive at a knowledge of the truth. But guess what? We're all wrong about some stuff as it pertains to God. You're wrong about some things. Did you know that? I'm wrong about some things. The hard part is we don't know what we're wrong about. And that's why we need to always have a posture of humility saying, God, if I'm wrong on some things, would you show me? By your Holy Spirit working with the word, would you confront me if I believe some things wrong? And would you grant me the humility to be able to go, I think I've been wrong on this. And let scripture fix what I believe instead of going, oh, let me work. Uh, how, do, how do I figure that out? Let scripture build what you believe. As we seek to know God from scripture, there are four ways he has revealed himself. One, he's revealed himself through his actions. We can see here I, I've given a few examples. In the ways that God has revealed himself, he's revealed himself through his actions like creating. In creation, we see God revealing himself as omnipotent, all-powerful, that he could say, let there be, and it was. God revealed himself in that act as all-powerful. He revealed himself as infinitely wise, that he could fine-tune the universe to where if our earth was a little further away or a little closer to the sun, minutia differences, we'd be dead. He revealed his wisdom in creation. Um, in judging, his action of judging, we see that God is a just, good judge. If you have been wronged, you want a good judge, right? You want a right, just, integrous judge. And also he's shown he's good by that. He's also shown that maybe we're a little too light and a little too comfortable with our sin and that maybe we don't have a high enough view of God, and that we have too comfortable of a view of our sin, that if God told them don't eat of a tree, and they ate of a tree, and we see the consequences of that disobedience, that ought to make us go, maybe God sees sin a little more wrong than I do. So in judging, it teaches me something about God's nature. The actions of redeeming shows me his forgiveness his grace, his mercy, his patience, his love. In his actions, as we see in Scripture, he reveals himself. In his names, Lord or Yahweh, we see that he is the Lord over all, over everything. God Almighty, El Shaddai. We can see in the New Testament when Jesus is coming on the scene, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. That tells us something about God. He's not God away from us saying, you guys over there. He came down to us, humbling himself, not considering his position next to the Father as something to cling to, but he humbled himself and took on flesh. That tells us so much about God. These images that we're seeing in Scripture, that God is called a Father, that I had a great, have a great Father who loves me, did a great job raising me. I never questioned whether or not my dad loved me, even though he's a sinner and has failed me and, and has messed up as a father before. I have a great picture of a father. Some of you might not have that. And I hope that you might not let that struggling image of who your father is be projected onto who the perfect father God is. 
We see in Scripture that God is the rock that we can stand on that's not moved by the waves or the wind or weather. We see that he is the bridegroom, that we are the bride of Christ, that he's wanting to purify us and make us ready for the eternity with him. That we see he's the shepherd. Jesus is called the shepherd. And then in the Old Testament, Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me to green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and so on and so on. I don't have time to go through it all, but we see so much and learn about God and who he is through these images we see in scripture. Then also his attributes are portrayed through scripture. His holiness, his goodness, his love, his grace. Guys, so many times we say, God, I want to know you. Would you speak to me? God, would you give me a word? And he's going, I did. But we want the spectacular, supernatural stuff that makes us feel super spiritual. And we believe in the gifts of the Spirit here. But we need not neglect this 66 volumes of God making himself available to us and what we can know about him through this, the divinely inspired word of God. Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would open their eyes by your Holy Spirit, that you would let us all see our need for Jesus. And God, I pray that you would stir our hunger, stir our passion to know you, not to just become scholars of the Bible where we can try and impress people, but that we would become students of you, wanting to know you, because as we know you, you transform us. You create passion within us. How can we know you and not have passion stirred in us? How can we see in scripture who you are and what you've done for us and not have our passion stirred? God, I ask you to stir our desire, our affections for your word, that we would dive into it and seek to know you and study. And that you would reward that, God, that you would let us know you, that you would continue to pull the curtain back more and more, letting us see you more and more, know you more and more. And by that, Lord, that as we know you, you we can make you known. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. I ask that you would let us know you. In Jesus' name, amen.